If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Deuteronomy chapter 30. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. New Year's resolutions, are, are you big on those? Yes, no? Is that passe now? Nobody does? Right, oh, yeah, okay. I see some of the looks from the younger crowd, and they're just kind of giving me the, the stink eye. So I guess nobody does. But people still talk about them at least, right? Even if you don't do them, even if you don't make a New Year's resolution, people still talk about New Year's resolutions, right? Okay. Well, just pretend for a moment that you're going to make a New Year's resolution because otherwise this message is totally empty if you're... No, I'm just... I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I, uh, I did think I'm um, a little mixed on the, on the whole idea of New Year's resolutions. They, you know, it's like so many other things in life, good to a point, but you have to be careful that um, you keep things in the right perspective and, and with the proper balance. And I think more often than not, the, uh, the danger or uh, the dilemma that something like a New Year's resolution poses to us is that um, on the one hand, um, those things usually come about because we recognize that there's an area, an area in our life that needs improvement, right? Right? Um, or we're lacking in some way, and so we need to kind of, you know, build ourselves up here in, you know, in this area, whether it's time management or something with the kids or work or something like that. And so that's a good thing. Um, but the, the danger is, is that a lot of times New Year's resolutions um, sort of subtly kind of communicate the idea that we're able to make improvements, even good necessary improvements, on our own. Right, so I was just thinking when we were singing some of these songs uh, in Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus, uh, one of the lines in there that I, I jotted down, the arm of flesh will fail you, you dare not trust your own, right? If, you're, if you think that by your own strength or ingenuity or stick-to-itiveness, you're going to improve your life, your situation, your standing with God, you, you, got, a, you got a rude awakening coming. It's just not going to work. And one of the things I like about this passage that we have this morning in Deuteronomy 30 is that it gets to a lot of those things. It doesn't just have to be when it comes to, you know, New Year's resolutions. I mean, it's the Christian life in general, of course. But especially as we look at, you know, one year just having gone by, we've got another year coming up. Typically, there are thoughts about, I hope, you know, this year is better than last year, or I hope that this year is as good as last year, whatever that might be. And there's a whole host of concerns and issues that are woven into this. So let's do this. Let me go ahead and read the passage that we have. I'll pray for us, and then we'll just start to, to walk our way through it, okay? So Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting at verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard in case yours reads a little differently. We read this. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. 
If you're outcasts or at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your cattle and in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. When you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law... When you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may do it? But the word is very near you in your mouth, and in your heart, so that you may do it. Let's pray. Father, how we need your word, not just in letter, but in the power of the Spirit. I ask now that the preaching of your word would be effective, that it would be Uh, fruitful, that it would accomplish all that you intend for it to do in this moment in time, in this room, at this location with this people. We pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know the truth as it's contained in your very being and essence, and that uh, coming to see that, we would see you more clearly, we would marvel at your grace given freely to your people. Help us, Father, to be aware of our unworthiness, which in turn just magnifies the greatness of your grace. Father, would you use your word to disturb those who are too comfortable right now? Would you use your word to comfort those who are troubled? And in all of these things, we ask that you would be glorified and that Christ would be exalted through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, with your word in our midst today. Open our eyes that we might see wonderful things from your law. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I'm going to walk through this passage in, uh, in three basic steps. We're going to uh, take a look at God's people, God's promise, and then God's better promise. So basically where we are at this point in Deuteronomy 30, we're towards the end of the book Moses is about to leave the scene. Joshua is going to take command. Israelites now are on the other side of the Jordan River. They're about to cross over into the promised land, into this promised blessing and reward, and life is going to be good. God is going to be living with them in the land. They're going to be unique and distinct among all the people of the earth. God lays out very clearly for his people, here's how you're to live. Here's what I expect of you. Here's what I intend to do with you. Here's what... I will do in light of your covenant obedience or 
Alternately, here's what I will do as a result of your disobedience. And we're getting to the last couple chapters of the book, and there's sort of this odd tension between this sort of God-driven optimism and this man-centered, what, depression or gloom and doom. Because basically what happens, and it, it happens here a little bit in chapter 30 and then in 31 and 32, God basically tells Moses and then the rest of the people, even though I've promised them a lot of good things and promised that I'll be with them, I know how this is going to end up. It's not going to go well. Not because I'm going to fail them, but because they're going to fail me over and over and over again. You get part of that in this chapter that we have here today. So look then, this is, this is God speaking, looking at the time when they're actually in the land settled and he's looking down the corridors of time. He knows all things. He knows the hearts of all men. And he's looking at this and he says, let me give you a glimpse of what's to come. And so we read in verse 1, so it shall be when all these things have come upon you. What all things? Well, the all things from 28 and 29, which he says here in verse 1, all things, these blessings and the curse which I have set before you. God says, you, you're, you're going to experience blessing. That's good because that means you're going to be obedient to a point, but you're also going to experience the curse, which means you're also going to be disobedient, which at first glance doesn't really seem too shocking or too out of the ordinary, right? Because, I mean, after all, let's be realistic, nobody's perfect, right? We've basically conditioned ourselves in life to say, you just got to learn to take the good with the bad, right? It's a typical father-son relationship here between God and his firstborn son, Israel, right? Sometimes my boy is good, and I get to reward him. Sometimes he's not so good, I have to discipline him. No big surprise. Except that when you think through the implications of what's said here, what is being described ultimately is not a situation in which God's people are just sort of a so-so nation who get a little bit of the good one day and then get a little bit of the bad the next day because they're there are signs, there are indications in the text that say, no, 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 no. They'll, they'll get some blessing, but ultimately, what's going to happen as they just kind of live out their inclinations and their desires, they're, they're going to go from maybe little blips of, of obedience and, and blessing to more frequent, more prolonged times and periods of disobedience and strain. My punishments are going to get increasingly severe to try to wake them up and bring them back, and it's not going to matter. And ultimately, one day, they're just going to be a cursed people. And you, you get that here through, through two things. One in the first paragraph, but then you will see it in a minute here in the last paragraph that we read. Look at in verse, uh, in verse 1. Notice it says, When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse... And you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you. You don't banish average citizens, do you? You don't evict normal, balanced tenants. Exile, banishment, 
eviction is the last resort. It's when there are no other actions to take. You've basically run to the bottom of the barrel and there's nothing left for you to do except to say, get out. I don't want to deal with you anymore. I don't want to see you anymore. And so you drive them out. And here's what God is saying here. So yes, there will be some obedience and some blessing that they'll benefit from. But by and large, the fact that he looks down the road and says, you'll get the blessing and the curse. And you'll remember all these things in the nations, among the nations where I scatter you, where I banish you, is an indication that ultimately the sin of the people is going to be more prominent than their obedience. Just to, just to give you an idea, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, we, you don't have to go there now, but there, there are a whole list. If, if you obey, here are the blessings that you can expect. If you disobey, here are the, here are the curses that are going to come. And it appears to be sort of a, uh, uh, what do you call it, sort of a graded discipline program. Like you, you start off with you know, some discomfort, some wounds, some affliction. And then after that, if that doesn't prove to be effective, then, you know, I'll turn up the pressure a little bit more. And there's a, just a, a whole laundry list of different ways that God is going to discipline his people in order to wake them up and get their attention. If you go back, one of the ways in which this becomes more apparent is when you look at sort of a, a complementary passage in Leviticus 26, where in Leviticus, some of these same curses are mentioned but it's, said very, it's, it's presented in this sort of, if you disobey, then I will do this. And if after all of this, you still do not turn and obey, then I will do this. And if after all this, you still don't turn and obey, then I will do, right? And it, gets, it gradually gets worse and worse and worse till the last final act of discipline, judgment, is God saying, get out of my sight. I'm done. Now, All that being said, when you go through Leviticus 26, just to give you an idea as to how bad it has to be in order for you to get to the point of exile, one of the punishments that God said he would bring on his people is this in Leviticus 26. He says, I'm going to bring your enemies to your doorstep, and they're going to have victory over you. They're going to oppress you. And at certain points, it's going to be so bad, you're going to be so deprived of just the basic necessities of life that some of you will actually turn to cannibalizing your own children. That comes before exile. So if, if you are, as a people group, if devouring your own children, if destroying your posterity so that you can survive one more day doesn't provide the smack in the face that you need to wake up and realize that something is wrong, what in the world do you say about a group of people like that? That is not just an average group of people. That is a group of people who are desperately wicked and yet have no clue how wicked they really are, how broken they are. So when God says, all these things will come upon you, the blessing and the curse, and you'll call them to mind in the nations 
where I've banished you. He's basically telling them up front, you're not just going to mess up a little bit. You're going to ruin this whole thing. You're going to take everything that I've given you and you're just going to throw it away. You're going to force my hand. See, but it's, it's even, in some ways, I guess, it's even worse than that. All right, so skip back down to the third paragraph that we read, which starts at verses 11 through 14. See, a lot of times when, when we think through this, right, Old Testament history and, you know, God gives the law to the people and they're, oh my gosh, there are all these hundreds of commands and, well, what did God expect? Why doesn't he cut them a little slack, right, that kind of a thing? Like, well, if God just kind of lowered the standards a little bit, didn't expect quite so much, well, maybe it wouldn't have come to this. Wrong way to look at it. Notice what God says in verses 11 through 14. For this commandment, this law that he's giving them, that they're going to break over and over and over again, this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It's not in heaven that someone has to go get it for you and explain it to you so that you can hear and understand it. It's not across the sea that someone has to take this arduous journey to find the will of God and bring it back so that you know what it is. No. Verse 14, the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, so that you may do it. God says... The manner in which I have given you my word, my law, my commands, and everything that comes with it, I've given it to you in such a way that it's not beyond your understanding. When you disobey, it's not because you don't understand what I expect of you. And when you disobey, it's not even because you can't do it. So then, why don't they do it? Doesn't it seem that if the word, if the commandment, if the law, if God's revealed will is in their mouth, they, they can say it, they can speak it, and in their heart so that they can know and understand it, doesn't it seem like if they, if they have that and still they don't obey, that you're talking about deeper problems than just mere external conformity? Right? For example, if... Uh, our four and five-year-old, Lee and Casey. When we go, when we go out and we go to a store, or, oh, we never go to a restaurant. When we go to a store or something like that, and we tell them when, when they're getting out of the car, we, we walk over to them, hold our hand out. Lee and Casey, when we're in the parking lot, you cannot run off without mom or dad. You have to hold our hand. And the little cherubs, they smile, and then they you know, place their hand in yours, and it's one of those hallmark moments, Right? walking into the store. And then you go and you do what you need to do in the store and then you come back, you get in the car and you go to the next spot. Same thing, same day, same parent, same child, nothing's changed. This time, when you go around and you hold out your hand, they don't even turn to look at you or even acknowledge your presence. They just pew, take off. What's the problem? Is the problem that they don't understand what mom and dad's expectations are? No. 
because they met the expectation not 20 minutes ago. Is the problem that they don't understand what's being said to them? No. Because when they were reminded, they responded with the appropriate action. The problem is not that they don't understand or that they can't do what they're being told to do. The problem is that there's something in them that rears its head at inexplicable moments to say things like, huh, I'm five years old. I don't need to hold his hand anymore. I've got this figured out. Right, and then on and on and on and on and on, right? As the kids get older. The problem here is that this is a people who are going to go increasingly deeper into sin and depravity, into rebellion, because ultimately the problem with God's people is that there's a sickness in their heart. They know what God is calling them to do. They just don't want it. They don't want to do it. They think they have a better way. They think they've got a better plan. They think they've got more wisdom. They think they've matured enough. Do you see yourself this way? Do do you see yourself sort of like in the, in the mold of, of Old Testament Israel. Can we get that first slide up, uh, CJ, with the description of God's people? Thanks. Do you, do you see yourself with a diseased heart? Do you recognize the fact that if left to your own devices, there really is no difference between us and them? That when you sort of put things on the scales, it's not that you sh- you're, you're good and you're bad, your obedience and your disobedience. It's not that they strike a balance. It's not that it gradually tips one way or the other. It's off the chart to the negative. What do you do with people like that? Better question is, what do we do with ourselves, right? Because it's not other people, it's us. God gives the answer, first promise. He says this in the second verse. After saying, when all these things come upon you, and by the way, it's going to come upon you because you are going to dive headfirst into sin and disobedience. When you call it to mind, and verse 2, you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you.
So as heart sick and messed up and broken as what God's people are, bigger than that is God's promise. That says, even though you fully deserve my curse at the end of the day, I'm willing to take the curse away. After it's been placed on you, I'm willing to take that curse back and to, and to bring blessing back to you. In fact, you, you can't really cheapen this idea of the blessing coming back just in terms of material benefits, and right? Like a, a lot of kids or a lot of money or, or something like that. Because ultimately, when you read through, the, the core, what lies at the center of this is God saying, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will dwell in your midst, and everything flows out of that. So for, for God's blessing to not be with his people in this construct means that God is not with his people. And God is saying, here, even though I have to kick you out of the house, evict you, I'm willing to take you back. Now, considering how crooked and perverse and depraved these people are, gosh, how hard is it going to be to come back, right? Well, you did one, two, three, four. So here's what you have to do to make it up. One, two, three, four. Is that the way that it works? No, the promise is if you just turn and face me, if you listen with your heart, that's enough. That's it. No working off of the debt. No trying to uh, remedy the problems that come with the curse. As it says in the song, the arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. You can't get into a better situation. You can't throw the curse off of you. I can take it off. And it's yours if you just simply turn and look to me. If it weren't for the fact that God himself were not saying this, this would be scandalous. Nobody, nobody thinks like this, much less acts like this. where you spit in my face day after day after day, you insult me, you impugn my character. You're unfaithful. But if all you do is turn back, I'll take you back with open arms and I'll, I'll re return to you, restore to you everything that I took away. It's almost like Paul has something like this in mind in Roman, in, uh, what is it, Romans 5, right? Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Let me just cut to the chase here on a couple points of application and relevance. One of the things that, that a passage like this does, on the one hand, it... Um, for those of us who, either because of just whatever period of, or stage in life that we're in right now, or maybe we're just kind of hardwired to this kind of thinking or behavior, for, for those of us who, who, um, who tend to have a high opinion of ourselves, 
something like this should sober you up real quick. Right? Because after all, elsewhere in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, all that he's looking at Israel's history, and he says things like, all these things were written for our instruction. So that when we look back and we see Israel, we would be instructed and we would know not to crave evil things like they crave, not to say this, not to do, right? Paul is basically saying there really is no difference between God's people in the Old Testament and God's people in the New Testament. The problem remains the same, which is that they're all heart sick. And if you tend to be the kind of person who thinks that you've got things under control, okay, fine, I'm not perfect, but on the whole, I think I'm, you know, I'm averaging out pretty well, you, you are not seeing yourself clearly in the light of Scripture. You're just not. Your sin, your disobedience far outweighs any momentary, brief acts of feigned obedience far outweighs it. Because the holiness and the righteousness that God calls for is, is, is two-sided. It's a, it's a double-edged sword. On the, on the one hand, he says, these are the things that you will not do. And you know what happens? I do them. And then on the, other side, on the other side, he says, you won't do this, but you will do this. And you know what I do? I don't do that. I sin by committing acts that I should not commit. And I also sin when I omit acts that I should commit. So it's not even just whether or not I don't do these things over here, but it's also the other column in this ledger that says, but are you also loving, kind, forgiving? All of those things too. And when you begin to see the holiness of God and these statements like, you shall be holy for I am holy, and you see what that holiness looks like in the pages of Scripture, you, you cannot be reading with your eyes open and think that you measure up. So on the one hand, what a passage like this does is that it, it sobers many of us. We need to be reminded over and over and over again that if I think things are going well, well, more often than not, it's because I'm not seeing clearly and I need to go back and look again through the light of Scripture. That to the extent that I enjoy any of the blessings or grace or goodness that God gives me, it's not because I deserve it. Far from it. Second way that this is helpful is that there's a, another group of us who get so weighed down that they think, well, blown it. No good now. Threw that opportunity away. God's done with me. Right? You, you kind of run to the, to the other end where you recognize your sin and your failures, but then that's all you recognize. You don't see the promise on the other side of that that says, yes, I, I know you didn't do that. 
I know, you're, I, I know you blew it here, but I'm telling you, if you just turn, if you look at me, I'll, I'll bring you back, I'll restore you, I'll fix you, I'll heal you. And you say, that just seems too good to be true. It's interesting that when you go through this chapter, in all of the places where it talks about um, obey or obey from the heart, you know, the, the word that's used there is actually the word for, for hear. If you turn and you hear from your heart. Right? Now, obedience is a fine translation. But the, the point is, is that you take to heart all of these things that I have said that you have turned a deaf ear to. You take those things to heart and you respond in kind. The problem with many of us, or the difficulty, and this is where the, the burden of our own sin and guilt is used in such a way to condemn us and to beat us down into the ground. The problem is, is that we don't listen to the heart, to the whole counsel of God. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. It's too good to be true. Right? If that's your attitude, if that's your thinking, if you think, well, I see what it says in here, but I, I just don't know if I can believe that. You're not listening. You're not listening from the heart. You're not taking to heart all that God has said, and you're not responding in kind. And then if we could put a little subcategory in there. Some of you probably whether it's a particular area in your life or life in general, whatever it is. Some of you probably just say, yeah, I know forgiveness is for them, but I'm, I'm just basically at that point, I'm, I'm just too far gone. In which case, you have to come back to a passage like Deuteronomy 30 and say, well, why does God say things like, no matter where you are, I will gather you up. Even if you're at the ends of the earth, from there I will take you and bring you back to myself. It sure seems like God is saying, you're never too far. Isaiah says it this way, is God's arm so short that he can't save? You're out of his reach? He spans the heavens. He fills the universe. How can you say that you're too far gone for him to save you and redeem you? And to get that kind of miraculous forgiveness and salvation, all you have to do is turn. Here's the next dilemma that comes with this, right? Can't be that simple, right? We've got to make it more complex. So God gives this promise and he says, no matter how sinful you've been, and by the way, you're going to be so sinful that you're going to exhaust all of my disciplinary measures. But even then, if you turn and listen, listen with your heart, I'll gather you back up, I'll return to you, I'll restore all of your blessings, I'll be good and gracious to you, I'll have compassion on you. Right, here's, here's the catch. In verse 2, it says this, so you call them to mind, verse 1, all that God has said, all that's happened to you, and you, you put it within the framework of, of what God had said ahead of time. And then verse 2, 
And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today. What, what's the problem with that? That's, that's sort of the condition that this hinges on, right? If you turn and listen with all your heart, what's, what's the problem? Yeah, the problem is their heart. So on the one hand, God says, look, you don't deserve this, but I'm willing to give it. Grab hold of your heart. Get it together. Turn. Repent. Seek my forgiveness, and I'll make it all good again. But isn't part of the problem that we've already seen here, especially in that third paragraph, right? This, this command, it's not too far, not too difficult, it's in your mouth and in your heart, isn't that part of the problem? That they don't have hearts that want to turn. So let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that they, they just get pummeled and they finally come to their senses one day and they wake up and they say, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that all of this ruin has come upon us. I cannot believe that we went so far down the path of disobedience and sin and rebellion that it's come to this. But look, God said, if we turn to him, he would turn to us. Let's take a chance. All right, let's, let's say they do that, which historically, you read further in the Old Testament, they do. How long is that newfound repentance going to last? Right? Here's where you come into the whole resolution thing, right? I resolve that I'm going to seek the Lord's forgiveness. I resolve that I'm not going to do this sin anymore, and I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take advantage of this new start that the Lord has given me. How, how long? How long does that last? with a heart like this. Tell me, how long? <laughs> not long, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. Some of us a day, a week, a year, right? But not long. And then guess what happens? You find yourself right back in this, this pattern again, which is your sin and your disobedience and your weakness beginning to outweigh your momentary acts of faithful obedience so that you begin that downward spiral again. So the promise is good, right? I'm, I'm glad, I'm amazed that as rotten as what we are, God would still say, but you're my people and I'll take you back if you just turn to me. But doesn't, isn't that just kind of tinkering around at the edges? It's not really getting to the root problem. It's dealing with the symptoms, exile. Lack of blessing. All those things are symptoms, but it's not really the root of the problem, which is God has a group of people that are heart sick. Their hearts are diseased and corrupt. That's why you need a better promise than the first promise. And that's what you get in verse 6. Notice what God says. Here's the better promise. Moreover, it's not just that the Lord will take you back. It's not just that he'll have compassion on you. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart 
and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. People, this is so, so good. Right? This is, this is God saying, yes, just on, on a simple human level, I, I will be gracious and compassionate to you and in the event that you seek forgiveness, in the event that you repent, in the event that you acknowledge your wrong, I'll, I'll take you back. But, of course, God knows everything. He, he knows that even that would just be temporary. So God says, well, restored blessing is not really going to be very much good if it can't be sustained. And it can't be sustained with the kind of hearts that these people have. And so God comes in and he says, so I'll take care of the whole problem. It's not just that I'll remove the curse and replace it with blessing, but I'll replace the heart that brought about the curse so that it's not just simply that you know, intellectually, understand, can recite by rote memory what my word says, what's in the law. I'm going to give you the kind of heart that actually loves what you read there and want to do it. I'm going to give you the kind of heart that says, in those times when I am disobedient, oh, there is something in me that says, that is not right. That's not what I want. Yes, yes, yes. I've, I've done it, maybe for a brief passing moment or for an extended period. I, I recognize that I did what, in theory, I don't want to do, but that's not, that doesn't feel normal for me anymore. I want something different because my heart is different. My heart has changed. So he's going to come in and he's going to circumcise the heart of his people. We still have minors in the audience, so we're not going to get too graphic here, okay? Let's just say this. To circumcise the heart means that there's going to be some cutting involved. It means that the heart is going to bleed, figuratively speaking. It means that there probably will be some pain and discomfort. But the pain and discomfort, the bleeding of the heart is itself an indication of the fact that there is a new heart there because before your heart was stone. It didn't feel. Or at least it didn't feel in any true and righteous way. Now it does. And later what we find out is, is that this promise where in Deuteronomy 30, there, there's no time frame for it. He just says, at some point I'll do this. We come to find out that this promise has already been acted on, has already been made good, and it's available for us right now. We don't even have to wait for it. Hold your place here and go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, look at verse 6. No, 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 let's start at verse 5. Romans 10, 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith 
speaks as follows. And then notice what Paul does. He quotes that last paragraph that we read today from Deuteronomy 30. And he says this. The righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no, descript, uh, no distinction between Jew and Greek. For, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see what Paul does there? He takes Deuteronomy 30 and he says the, the problem with the, the old promise is that everything was contingent upon how the people responded to the law that God had placed on their hearts and in their mouths. And here's the problem. The law says, Deuteronomy 30, 14, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. The law is there telling you, you must do this. Paul comes to Romans 10, and he leaves out that last part. He quotes, it's, it's near you, in your mouth and in your heart, but he leaves out that you may do it. You know why? Because the better promise is not based on your work, it's based on God's work. The word of the law that demands your work for your right standing has been transcended by the announcement of God's work for your favor. And so elsewhere, Paul says this. He makes a couple comments here. We'll throw these up on the screen just because we don't have time to turn there. He says in a couple other places, picking up on this circumcision language. CJ, if you'll go to the uh, Philippians slide. Paul says, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. See Paul grabbing that idea? That's Deuteronomy 30 type imagery. I'll circumcise your heart, Paul says, that's us now in Christ. He says in Colossians 2.11, and in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's us. And that promise is never revoked, it's never taken away. God says, for all those who come to me, all those who call upon the name of Christ, I will take out the law that condemns them and I will replace it with the person and work of Christ on their behalf. And no more curse exists for that person because it's already been done perfectly. All of their obedience, all of the righteousness that they could never manufacture, it's already been done and it's given to them as a free gift. There's nothing left for them to do. And then you just live in gratitude for the fact that it's there. Let me, let me make one more. Give me just a couple, just, I want to say two minutes. 
two minutes, okay? Because here's, for me, this, this is one of the things that, that comes back to where I, I look at this and I say, okay, circumcise the heart. I'm going to have a new heart. It's going to bleed. It's going to feel. It's going to be new. It's going to be, right, everything done now so that I can love God, so that I can love his word. So, and then I stop and I turn, okay, well, wait a minute, though. If this is a, a universal guarantee for all of God's people in the new covenant, right, that this new circumcised heart is not just for some of God's people, but now it's for all of his people. Why does that new circumcised heart still not seem to work exactly right all of the time? Anyone ever wondered that? If all of what you're saying is true, he gives us a new heart, how come I still enjoy sinning? That can't be the new heart at work, can it? And I think there, there are two ways, of, two ways of looking at it. One is, is by way of analogy, and then the other is, is by way of scripture. The analogy is this. When someone goes into the hospital for a heart transplant, they wake up in the ICU, the doctor's standing over them, and they say, congratulations, Mr. Merritt, the transplant was a success, you have a new heart. Is my first response, oh, doc, that's great, because next month I had a 5K schedule that I was really wanting to make sure I ran. And the doctor looks at me and he says, you are crazy. Yeah, you got a new heart, but your new heart still has to be conditioned. It has to be strengthened. It has to be put through its paces. You've got to change your diet. You've got to make sure that you're not coming into contact with contamination and infection. It's that sort of thing, right? There's still a lot of junk in the flesh That requires our new heart to be conditioned. That's why, even with a new heart, there's still the element of striving in the Christian life. Because you still have remnants of all these other infectious desires that are trying to pull you away from where your new heart is wanting to take you. The scriptural picture that I would offer you is found in the teaching of Jesus himself. So if we can go to John 15. Look at what Jesus says. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does, uh, that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. What do you, what do, you do when you prune? You cut. You say Wait. I thought the cutting was already done. I had the heart circumcision. I'm done with cutting. I don't want any more wincing or pain or bleeding. God says that's not the way it works. Yes, I'll, I'll do the major renovation. I'll give you the new heart, circumcised, beating, feeling, loving truth and righteousness. But the reality is I'm still going to have to come back from time to time and I'm still going to have to cut out little abscesses or gross or clean out arteries or I'm going to have to come back and I'm going to have to cut some more. Not as dramatic as the new birth experience, but still uncomfortable and still a reminder of the fact that I'm still not yet what God has promised that I will be. That day's coming, it's just not here yet. So here's, here's where we'll wrap things up. If you're here this morning and you see yourself 
as very much sort of in this way of life that says, I basically am trying to keep, you know, an average score with God. I find all of my security, I find my confidence based on what it is that I've done or how well I'm keeping up with fill in the blank. I would encourage you to listen to the words of Deuteronomy 30 and to recognize that so long as you're depending on your own flesh and your own strength, you will never come out ahead. You never will. And at the end of the day, if you do not wake up to this sooner rather than later, your curse will be found in eternity. One way or the other, you will find that you do not have credit in the eyes of God. He owes you nothing. The only way that you can have right standing with God, the only way that you can have his favor and his compassion is if you turn, acknowledge that you're bankrupt and say, I need the riches of Christ. I need his righteousness. I need his perfection. And God says, I will give that to anyone who asks. All you have to do is ask. If that's you today, I would love to talk to you after the service to tell you more about this. I'll be at the door sending people off as they walk out. Don't leave the sanctuary. I'll come back in and I'll find you. And we'll sit down and talk. Some of you may not be exactly on the outside looking in, thinking that you can earn your way into God's good standing. You may have actually already had that circumcised heart but you've been lulled into thinking that because you have this new start, you can just kind of put it on autopilot, just kind of cruise for a bit. You've got it well in hand, and you're not taking into account that your flesh is not dead yet. You still have competing desires that are trying to pull you away from where your new heart is wanting to take you. And you have to come over and over and over again back to the basics of the gospel that says, if it's not for God's grace working in me and through me, no good thing that I do will ultimately last. Every day you have to remind yourself of the fact that any appearance of righteousness is itself a gift that God has given you. And for those of you who are here, who are in God's family, who say, I know that God is forgiving, I know that he's merciful, but there's just too much that's happened. I did too much at college, I've done too much at work, I've done too much at home, whatever the case might be, it's, it's just too late. I'm, I'm telling you, not personal opinion, I'm telling you on the authority of God's own word, his arm is not so short that he still cannot gather you back up and restore you. If you turn and ask for it. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you after the service. Don't go anywhere. Let's pray. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be all the glory and honor and praise because of the great things that you have done for us. Lord, if you should count our iniquities and our sin, who among us would be able to stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. For all those who wait on you, for all those who turn to you, you promise that we will find 
loving kindness, and abundant redemption. I thank you, Father, that the truth of this message in Deuteronomy 30 spans across all of the pages of Scripture, that your goodness and your love for your children, your, your family is such that you see to it that nothing will stand in the way of your blessing on our behalf. I pray, Father, if there are any in this room right now who do not know what it is, what it means to have this new birth, this heart transplant, so that they can think and love and feel in ways that please you and honor you. Father, I pray that you would miraculously chip through that stone and that hard exterior, that you would wound them and bring them to the point of conviction and repentance so that they would find the joy of salvation. For those who have been weighed down and burdened by their failures and their, um, their sins, discouraged at the fact that they feel like there should be more signs of success precisely because they're your children, I pray, Father, that you would just remind them again of your unending faithfulness and the fact that every single day new mercies await them and they can take those new mercies right now at this very moment if they simply turn and ask for it. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your holiness and your righteousness that causes you to send your son to be the substitute sacrifice for our sin so that we could have right standing with you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.